Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome. This is Carl's Roller Coaster Podcast. What's going on, my friends? Hope you're all well. I'm delighted to bring it to you today, Mr. Obi O'Brien, producer, studio designer, recording engineer, songwriter, longtime Bon Jovi's sound engineer, and John's best friend. I hope you all enjoy this amazing, great mind that is Obi O'Brien. Hello, Obi. How are you doing, my friend? I am doing. I couldn't be better unless I was twins. <laughs> That's a great and that, response. That is a line from David Bryan, uh, our keyboard player, who right. is the funniest human being on the face of the planet. <laughs> that is a very, very good response. I am very well yes. too, my friend. Yeah, very good. It's a good day in London. It's sunny. It started the week very well. The temperature is good. Yeah, uh, it's beautiful here. I'm looking out the window right now. It is. Uh, it's like. 35 degrees celsius here no way so, that hot yeah it's it's hot it wow. is warm it is really warm but it doesn't matter because i'm sitting in my air-conditioned kitchen that's all that matters <laughs> that's really good because because in america and in south america due to those high temperatures being something quite uh usual people do have air conditioning at home here in England, we don't. We all have heaters in the in the houses because it, it most of the time is actually pretty cold. So air conditioning is a luxury not needed. <laughs> I have I have air conditioning in my house and in my garage and in my other buildings. I have air conditioning everywhere. I I am a good client to the electric company. <laughs> Where are you exactly based, uh, Obi? Where is home? I am in Southeast Pennsylvania. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm basically, you know, I'm a Philly person, and I love Philadelphia. Um, I love the music history of Philadelphia. I love the Philadelphia Eagles football team. Um, and it's a cool town, and it's the only place in the world you can get a real cheesesteak and a real hoagie. And uh, But I live south of the city now. I live with the Amish. I live in an, in an area that has, you know— it's very rural, a lot of farms, a lot of Amish. So it's uh, from May till the end of October, it looks like a postcard here. Wow. Wow. I've been to Philadelphia only and and I just uh, I just loved it. I obviously, you know, wanted to go and, and do what tourists do and visit the Rocky Steps and all of that business. And, uh, <laughs> and I did. And I did twice. Uh, it's funny how life unveils because when I first went, I thought... Oh my God! I never really thought that I would, one day I would be here, and and now I'm here, and then literally like less than ten months later, I was there again, and uh, yeah, I'll keep I'll keep going uh, to the Rocky Steps whenever in Philadelphia because I, I I loved it, and I love the people too. Such a great place, such a great place. Oh wait a minute! Did did you have a hoagie? Did you have a cheesesteak? I did have the Philly cheesesteak on the first time I went to Philadelphia. After that, on the second time that I went, I didn't because then I was out of meat. I was trying to avoid meat, and I still am trying to avoid meat for several reasons. <laughs> and well, uh, yeah, yeah, there, there, there's no vegetarian cheesesteak. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you know what? Here in London, <laughs> they do something similar with seitan. 
you know that gluten uh, thing that they make like burgers and for for vegans and and it, yeah. it, it tastes really good but but I mean I myself I come from from a very meaty place the south of Brazil where you know Argentinian barbecues and and things like that are just the norm and and obviously you know the taste of meat is something that it's very important for me but um, but I think you know there's bigger there are bigger issues on the planet nowadays so I kind of like uh, try to steer away from it and I will definitely tap into this particular subject uh, later on on our conversation but uh, I would be very much interested in knowing uh, how was your bringing if you if you if you if you if you if you, if you were, well you said you're Philly you from Pennsylvania and if you could tell yeah. me a little bit about your upbringing uh, how was the family if you you know if you went to college and uh, and how you know your musical influences uh, reached you well, I, 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 didn't, I did not go to college. I, I barely made it out of high school by the skin of my teeth. Um, I, I, I was exposed to music very early on in my life. My father was a drummer, and my father had a big band. He had uh, a few different incarnations of a big band. He had as many as 20 people at one time, and as uh, small as 12 people. So, and my father also had a music store when I was a kid. So, you know, I was getting the new Elvis records and the new Little Richard records and uh, everything when they came out, because I would just go downstairs from our apartment that was above my father's record store, and I'd go down and grab the records I wanted. And there was always music playing in my house. My father would listen to Stan Kenton and Tommy Dorsey and Glenn Miller. And, and uh, he listened to all the big band guys, Artie Shaw, Duke Ellington. So there was always music playing in my house. So I was exposed to it early. So I started playing drums when I was a kid. I was probably 11 or 12. And I started with the drums because my father had a drum set. It was free. It was in the house. So uh, I started playing probably, yeah, probably 12 years old. I really started really playing. And then I think I had my first band when I was 13. And uh, believe it or not, our bass player in Bon Jovi, Hugh McDonald, and I were in a band together in 1963. Oh, wow. So, I had no idea. Yes. Huey and I moved next door to each other in 1955. How about that? Wow. So we've known each other that many years. So I was in a band with Hugh when I was a kid. Like when, when I was in high school, I had a band with Hugh. You know, it was a, basically the kids on our street. Mm -hmm. There was always somebody's house we could rehearse in. You know, there were multiple musicians and uh, we all started playing together how about that that is really cool and what, what was your was your dad when you started uh, playing drums and rehearsing with uh, um, with the band was he um, supportive in the sense of like because you know how those things go you know people tend to think and uh, that you know music a musical career it's something that it's not a proper job and it's very difficult obviously to to make a living 
um, working with music and obviously parents wishing and wanting the best for their kids, they tend to go uh, uh, down the traditional route, which is, you know, going to college and getting a degree in law or medical school or anything like that. So how was that scenario for you on your family, within your well, family? Everybody was pretty good about it. I, I didn't have the greatest relationship with my father, but, you know, he was... He was uh, ill, and 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 they were prescribing him a lot of medication, a lot of medication. So he sort of became someone I didn't know. So to me, the music, getting out of the house and playing music was <laughs> it got me out of the house, and it gave me something I got a lot of enjoyment. But I, I will tell you, in 1964, when the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan. We all, we actually all watched that up in the bedroom upstairs at my parents' house because it had a color TV on it. And I remember seeing the Beatles and looking around and going, that's what I want to do. I mean, that's what I wanted to do. I said, that's what I want to do. I want to make that kind of music. I want to have that kind of impact. So that's what you, that's what you strive for, you know, and, and, Back then, of course, I wasn't writing, and it was just I was strictly a drummer. And when I went to high school, I met an amazing man by the name of Lou Del Negro, who was uh, the music teacher at the high school where I was. And he was one of the most influential people in my life. He was an incredibly talented pianist. He never slagged popular music. And you would go in that class and he would take Beatles songs and take them apart and show you their classical counterpart, like where this part came from. And I learned all about theory and harmony in his class because I, I, I didn't know anything about it. I learned really how to play piano when I was in that class. And uh, I, I understood the basics of uh, arranging and the practical application and, and frequency ranges of instruments. It was, th that was probably the most productive four years for me musically was uh, working with Lou Del Negro. And I, I like, I, I took all my homerooms in, in the music room and I, I was in the band, the marching band, but he was great. And, and I, and over the years I have, Every couple of years, I'm able to like say hello to him. So I've seen him probably was probably five years ago. But he was an amazingly important person in my growth as a musician and my love for playing and making music. That's really interesting. That um, well, back then you used to have a subject in school that you would learn uh, music, mu well, h harmony and composition and, and get really into um, the, you know, the practice, you know, music in itself, because nowadays it's definitely not a subject in school anymore, isn't it? And nowadays no, if you want to get like... No, some, I don't think it's as important anymore. Yeah. If you want to get some real learning, you're going to have to seek for private education. And I most certainly myself, uh, many years ago when I did my, 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 my music diploma, I had to seek for pri a private school. And, and luckily enough, I had 
parents that could afford that at the time because other than that you would have to be self-taught which is totally fine but it's not it's not something that is for everyone if you know what I mean some people just do need uh, and have the interest on going deeper into into the details into the the, 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 the you know the architecture the the, the structure of, of music and and that was most certainly the case with me but I find that really amazing that you had that opportunity and that, and that lasted for four years so four years in high school you had um, how, how many times a week was it an hour a week or something? Oh, I, I, I was in I was in that music room three or four times a day every day Wow and, and you know there's still my wife's niece Heather teaches music at a high school in Maryland and she is she she's very much like the gentleman that I, I was describing to you, she loves it and she loves teaching children and she loves watching them, <clears throat> you know, come of age, playing music and understanding music and getting the joy out of music. So there's still some teachers that want to make it work, even with all the budget cuts and where, you know, music now sits on the financial chart when they're looking at places to cut funding you know, I'm sure mm -hmm. those kind of programs are at the top, but there are still those people who love it and want to pass it along. And and I, I try to do that now. I'm working with some, you know, young, very talented uh, musicians, but, you know, there's no money. They're all doing other jobs to make ends meet so they can pay their rent and buy food and and, you know, it's not about, it can't be about the money, because if you're in the music business for money, you're 30 years too late. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you're in it, you, you have to do it because you love it and you want to pass it along. And, the, and this is one thing I can do, because, you know, if you're working with an artist who's 21 or 22 and they hit and they have a 40 year career, you know. I'm not going to be here for the majority of it, <laughs> but, but they carry those lessons that they, the things that you've taught them musically, what you've taught them, what you've learned over the years and just talking about like, we'll come here and people will come here to write. And we sit around in a circle, um, in my studio and, and we talk about making music and, and how music can change somebody's life and, how it can take you to a better place when you're in a bad place and how it can make you laugh, how it can make you cry, how it can make you think. It's truly an amazing, you know, and, and making music is the last magic on the planet. It, it, if you're going to build a home, you go and you buy plans and you open those plans up and it shows you how many two by tens and two by fours and how much plywood. You sit at a piano to write a song there's no blueprint. There's 88, there's 88 notes on that piano. I mean, you're looking from one end, from the high end to the low end. You know, what is that first note? What is that first chord? What is the story? What's the narrative to make someone listen and, and to touch them? And, and there are songs to this day. If I'm having a bad day, I'll tell you what, if I'm having a crappy day, I put the Beatles in my life one and everything is okay three minutes later <laughs> you know and that 
it, music is an incredibly, incredibly powerful thing, you know, and, and it can do amazing things. So, you know, I think it needs to be there. I think it needs to be in the forefront, and I think it's important. It's very unfortunate that it is not anymore these days. And, and, and obviously, when it comes to, to like, um, rock music and, and, and genres of music that are not on the mainstream um, of the media in general, it, it, it becomes just harder and harder because when people say that, you know, um, uh, the, this type of music, this genre of music is, 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 is vanishing, uh, it actually is when you look in, into the big picture, you know, where, where, where rock will be in 50 years from now. Will there still be rock or will it be something that people will look back and say, oh, once upon a time, you know, such and such thing happened and things like that used to be, um, you know, uh, the artists would be on festivals and artists would actually do this kind of music because um, the, the, the music business has changed so drastically that uh, there's well like you said there's no money involved anymore it's so complicated for a new artist for a newcomer to to even try just to try something it's 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 really obviously there's two sides of the coin people talk as well about the fact that you know with the digital world now it's so much easier to expose your art anybody can record an album in their bedrooms these days with a pretty pretty decent quality you know albums that are actually uh, licensed and released uh, through labels worldwide, you know, that people record with drum machines and then, you know, they do... Oh, yeah. It's, it, it, well, you know, it, it's, it, it, what it comes down to, it's the best of times and it's the worst of times. It, it's the best of times because if you don't have the money or the wherewithal to record, but you have a guitar and you have a story to tell, you take your iPhone and you do a little recording and you can put it up, you know, mm. on a, a digital site. I mean, you, there is there is a place to place it. I mean, when you look at how many pieces of music every week get put up mm. everywhere, I, I mean, I, I can't even imagine how many, is it 150,000 pieces of music a week are going up? I mean, who knows? I mean, it's hard to tell. So it's the best of times because... In the old days, you, you ended up with a tape, a physical quarter-inch tape or half-inch tape. And then, like, you know, what are you going to do with it? Mm -hmm. You know, in 1965, you had a, a tape, a reel of tape, a reel of quarter-inch tape. So if you were going to play that for somebody, you had to go somewhere that had that a tape recorder, mm -hmm. an actual reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder. Now you can put it up on numerous digital sites, mm -hmm. you know, and streaming sites. So it's the best and it's the worst because there's so many things and pop music, you know, rules right now. I mean, pop mm -hmm. music. And then you have places like Spotify, which are huge. And what has happened is sort of Spotify and those streaming, I, they sort of rule the way certain records are made now. Mm -hmm. um, you ha you have about four seconds to keep somebody interested. You you have four seconds to pique their interest to listen. Mm -hmm. So everything is sort of there for you. I mean the 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 songs don't necessarily take you for a ride. Mm 
where mm. things change from verse to verse and as the song goes on and you know it's mm. it's a different uh, i mean i limit that rock is not prominent you know because mm. I, I i grew up with you know when i was a kid my pop band was the beatles mm-hmm. you know <laughs> mm-hmm. the most amazing songwriters in popular music however um so so for do me, I, I do i wish there was i knew where the next acdc was coming from mm-hmm. sure mm-hmm. but it's whatever people takes them whatever music takes people to that place that place, and we all know what that place is, because when we listen to music and we're taken to that place, it's a place of comfort, you know, and, and, and you know, certain music becomes the soundtrack of your life. Mm-hmm. And that that's like watching your favorite movie and you hear that soundtrack. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm working with a young artist. His name is Cole Redding. And because of his age, he grew up, he and his friends, the soundtrack to their life is Britney Spears. Mm -hmm. That's those kind of records they grew up with. So they gravitate to those incredibly precise. Everything is perfect. You know, records with drum machines and everything running MIDI. And I mean, those kinds of pop records, they love them, you know? And, Mm -hmm. and so that's what moves them. Whatever it is, you can't, you can't go, Oh, well, well, how about blah, blah, blah? Because blah, blah, blah doesn't do it for them. Mm-hmm. That does it to them. It makes them happy. If they get up in the morning and put that music on and it pumps them up and gets them ready to go out for the day and fight the battles that they have to be, you know, do, it's whatever. Absolutely. Because you know, it, it, it goes from one end to the, to the other, whether it's classical music or jazz or bebop or big band or pop, rap, uh, R&B, you know, it doesn't matter. Whatever takes you to that place, whatever gives you that magic ride and takes you to that place. Mm-hmm. It, it, so you can't you can't slag any one kind of music. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I listen to a lot of different stuff. You know, and Obi, when uh, so so back then when when you're playing with the band and you know trying to did you did you actually try to um, make a career as a performing artist or how, 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 how did things evolve to, to the point where you were working at Power Station in New York? Well, I was, I had, I wanted to record and my father had a Sony tape recorder that had sound with sound. So you could record on one track right, of the stereo tape recorder, then play that back and sing or play along to it. So I went to the library. I got a book, a couple books on recording, and I got a book. I wanted to build a studio in my parents' basement, and I got a book on studios and designs, and they had pictures of what they looked like. So when I was, I guess I must have been 17 or 18, I built a little recording area in my parents' basement, and I used that tape recorder. And I, there used to be a uh, electronic store called Lafayette, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you could buy a mic mixer that ran on a nine volt battery, 
and it was this thing, it may have been six or eight inches long, and it cost like $12. Hmm. And you would plug your microphones that you bought at Radio Shack or Lafayette, or one of those cheap, you know, dynamic microphones. And I recorded my band playing. So I put the horns in one side of the basement, and I had this area for the drums that was all covered with carpet, you know, because at the time it was like, yo, you make it dead, right? Mm -hmm. And then I was able to play that back in headphones for the two singers, and they sang to it. Now I had music on one track, and I mean, of course, I was using two drums for the for the for the drum set, and then one microphone for the horn section. You know, it, it was what it was. But so I've got all the music on one. Now I've got all the singers on the other. Then I took those two. I brought a friend of mine's tape recorder in, and I mixed them together in mono. And then on his tape recorder, we put it down. So I I understood the basic concept of recording and multi-tracking um and then i bought my buddy lance quinn who's by the way an amazing incredible producer and guitar player brilliant guy we he moved he was starting to become a successful studio musician and he was working in the dc area washington and i and i moved down there into virginia we had a house and uh, he bought a TIAC four track. So it had the 10 and a half inch reels and it ran at 15 IPS. So it was the quietest, like at home recording you could do. And then, and then you really learned how to, to do stuff and over, understood how um, overdubbing worked. And then from there, you know, I got a job at a studio and then I, I moved back to Philly and I worked at some local studios. And then uh, a friend of mine that I met back then, Phil Niccolo, had built a studio right outside of Philadelphia. And I went and worked at his little place. And he and his brother, Joe Niccolo, both were very talented producer, engineer guys. And, you know, I worked with them and helped build another studio for them in Philly. And, you know, during that time, I had met um, Tony Bon Jovi. John Bon Jovi's, I believe it was his second cousin. And he was doing, I mean, he, he had built a power station in the late 70s. And they actually were recording everybody. I don't care who you were. If you were a mover and shaker, you had recorded at the power station. It was the who's who. You saw everybody there. And uh, he had me come up and work with some artist that he was producing or he would be thinking about producing and I would work with them. And that's where I met John Bon Jovi. And at the time he was an 18 year old kid right out of high school. And he was sort of a utility guy. He worked on sessions, cleaned up after sessions, you know, I, I was a runner, pretty much did everything up there. And that's how my association with John started. And that was 1980. So he's, he was, like I said, he was an 18-year-old kid. So he and I became friends, and, you know, geez, 39 years later, we're still friends. It's, and uh, But working at the power station, you got to see the best. You guys had, like, Bob Claremont, Mills Dorfman. I mean, you, the guys that were the great engineers, they were all there. 
And you can watch, you can look in a room and see how they set up the mics on the drums or how they were using room mics. Or, mm-hmm. And it was just this great spot, that, that, that moment in time that it's very hard to capture. Mm-hmm. Because studios don't last a long time. Mm-hmm. Studios come and go. They, mm-hmm. they just come and go. You look at Columbia, that amazing studio in New York. Jeez, I mean, it was huge. They did everything. I think they opened in 48 or 49. And then I think it was 1982, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. They went, okay, we're done. It was hard to survive. It was mm-hmm. hard to keep the great personnel. It cost a lot of money mm-hmm. for technicians, for assistants, for engineers. And you're always having to buy the new equipment. You need to have the newest, greatest you know, you can't have that old Ampex tape recorder. Now you have to have the big new Studer. And then you, you can't have an analog machine. You have to do the new Sony digital. It, I owned a commercial studio in Philadelphia for a few years. And I'll tell you, it, it's, it was a struggle, even back then, mm-hmm. to, to make money. You were constantly bombarded. People would call you up and go, hey, we want to come there and book a month. But, you know, we are, we're only going to do it if you have this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. And you go, well, uh, Maybe if I buy it, I mean, they're only going to make a dent with what they're paying, but maybe if I buy it, then the next five clients will come in here and spend two to four weeks. Mm-hmm. But it never it never materializes. So it's a hard business being in the recording business, I will tell you that. How was, uh, what, what exactly did you do on the, on Springsteen, the river back in 1980? That, uh, well, I, I, did, I didn't work on that. I didn't, I've never worked on any Springsteen stuff. Right, right. Because uh, when, when we look into your, into your credits, uh, into your discography, it, it, it is listed um, The River and uh, Born in the USA. But then you I'll, didn't have any professional involvement. In that. Well, two things. I get confused for a guy named Toby. That was with... <laughs> Bruce for years and years and years. And there was also um, a woman in New York City who's an engineer who works at the Manhattan Center. Her name's Obi O'Brien. Oh, right. Okay. So once in a while, I'll, I'll see my name like on a Broadway casting and I go, <laughs> well, but she's, she's very, very talented. And she, she, I actually got to meet her years ago. We, we did a thing at the Manhattan Center. Mm-hmm. I remember going up to her and going, Obi, Obi. <laughs> so it was very nice to meet her. No. So yeah, so that there's a couple of those things that that are not me. Mm-hmm. And so and when so when when you were at the power station and then and then you met uh, John back then, uh, what 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 was the what was the obviously you pro, you guys probably um, got together and were mind like 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 minded, but in terms of of music. What, what what was what was the interaction? Did he came up to you and, and showed you some music, and then you were interested, and eventually you you hooked him up with the people in the studio to record? And what what exactly happened to evolve to the well, point where obviously you my, guys end up spending my par- the the guy that was my partner at the warehouse, Lance Quinn, who I, I spoke about before, um, was a heavy duty session player by that time, and he was working at the power station playing on tons of records um and then uh tony bon jovi john's cousin and lance quinn uh were doing records they 
Elvis Brothers, Carlene Carter, Talking Heads. So Lance was working, playing sessions, playing guitar records and making records. And he did the demos with John. And then uh, when John got his record deal, Lance produced the first two records. But, you know, while I was working at the power station, I mean, John would play me stuff. And then we would talk about music. It was it was it's about music and about bands and about music and you know and he he had a couple bands and he was playing live and he also wanted to learn um, uh, he also wanted to learn everything there was about the studio. So he you know he was also learning the technology in the studio. You know, he was trying to take it all in because he wanted to know everything. He was so driven, but he wanted to have command of everything, just everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, John and I just hit it off for our love of love of music. And he was, he was the, he was just this energetic kid. And you you would look at him and go, that kid's going to do something because he, he lived it, twenty four seven. He lived it, and he and it's, he's a still he's the same guy today. You know, I mean, he's constantly writing songs, and we're always recording, and he just loves the the creative end of it, making music, making something that affects someone. And uh, looking back now, it's um, and obviously making a comparison to today's mu- uh, music industry standards. Uh, looking back, uh, when when the first album came out, and and I mean the band all the way till uh, the third album, Sleeper When Wet, the band was still uh, uh, basically the band wasn't a headlining act yet i remember uh reading about it that uh even when the sleeper when wet album reached number one on the billboard charts the band was touring with uh, as a as a as a special guest back then still yeah. i mean imagine yeah. you know and then uh, well, on the, i think ross slippery Alf- when wet did, did change everything mm. slippery when wet changed the world for those guys i remember John sending me a cassette. Remember them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I still have some <laughs> with of those. <laughs> with a yellow label on it. And I was at the studio, and I and I put that on, and I went, "Are you kidding?" I heard that record and went, "I I just remember going, this is this is unbelievable. This you know you just knew <laughs> you knew that was going to be the thing that changed the world." Mm-hmm. And it did, right? It did in many oh, it, ways. <laughs> it really did. It really did. It really, really did. Um, and and good for them because mm-hmm. these guys all worked hard. Mm-hmm. These guys, they, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, people don't realize. You know, these guys were were in vans. They were in Tico station wagons. They were carrying gear up the stairs. You know, it was these guys paid their dues. And you hear that all the time. Well, you got to pay your dues. These guys did everything. They played horrible places. They played tough gigs. They had a struggle to 
grab an audience's attention when they were the opening act and you know everyone wants to see you know the headliner mm-hmm. and you've got to go out there and convince them that they should pay attention to you they did all this stuff they were you know they were they were a band and they were in a van they were in a car traveling together you know you, you become a family when you do that you know you, you the highs and lows you, you experience them all together Mm-hmm. When so back then, Obi, were you you you're still obviously you're friends with John? But did you have any professional involvement with with the band? Were you going on the road with them? When did you start going on the road with them? Um, <laughs> when they got a jet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I he actually recorded his second album at my studio in Philadelphia. And then at that point, so at that point, I have a studio in Philadelphia. And towards the end of my run of owning that studio, I built a studio for him in his home up in New Jersey. So I was doing things with him. And, you know, it was basically a demo studio or, and I would mix live stuff for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had a studio that, you know, you make a commitment, my partners and I. And, you know, we had to be there to do that. Um, and then after that went down, you know, we sold it and then you're like, you're like, well, what, what do you do now? And then basically John said, well, here's the deal. Come on, you're going to come with me and, uh, we're going to make a lot of people happy and make a lot of good music. And of course I went, okay, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I'm not an idiot. And then, you know, but I, I, I started going out on the road with them. And, and towards the end of the 80s, mm-hmm. towards the end of the 80s. And, and it was, uh, you know, I got to see the heyday when it was just crazy. And then, and then you go, you know, I wonder how long you can sustain this. Mm-hmm. And then we just did a European run and you come back and there's 74,000 at Wembley. People are going nuts. They're louder. They're singing louder than the PA. Mm-hmm. You know, so you go, whoa, maybe it'll never end, mm-hmm. you know, because there's people that that music still touches. And I watched that crowd and you watch when he'll sing a ballad like Bed of Roses or Always. And people, I see their face and they're mouthing the words and you realize that crowd has melted away for them, that they go, he is singing this and they are playing this just for me. That's the magic. You know, when, when you see that, when they're lost in the performance, the, the, the audience gets lost in the performance. Mm-hmm. And th- there are times where <laughs> I think everybody falls into it. Like I'll be mixing something and it's going out live. We'll be doing it live. And I start listening to the song, you know, you, you sort of forget and you're like looking at the speakers and you're sort of singing along and you go, Oh yeah, there's a guitar ride I just missed, you know, because you're, 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 it envelops you and you, and you're sucked into it also as, as a fan and as an audience member, you're listening to the performance. Mm -hmm. So, well, don't tell them I said that. Um, how, 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 obviously, like you just said, Obi, like you, you, you leave the heyday, you know, like during the eighties and then towards the end of the eighties, obviously 
early 90s uh, for rock music uh, and, and heavy metal music, which was a big, big thing during the 80s, things started to change drastically when we got that album called Nevermind from a band called yep. Nirvana. <laughs> and yep. the grunge yes. and all of those great bands, you know, uh, came from, 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 from that scene. But then there was a drastic change in the scenario. But having lived the, 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 those, those heydays with, with such a, a, a big act as as Bon Jovi and, and leaving that period of sleeper and what, how, how, how did the one maintain, um, well, sobriety maybe? That's one of the things because we always hear about, you know, people getting lost with fame and fortune. How does the one uh, maintain, um, you know, keep, them, keep themselves fit and, and focused on... on on, on the job in itself on, on doing the doing the good doing delivering the goods and doing uh, what you love without being sucked sucked in into obviously the you know temptations that that you know surround being uh, in a big band as as you know as Bon Jovi is but then back in the 80s when things were just absolutely wild well you know it you know all this comes down to the character of the people in the band, right? And John, I, he, he works so hard. I, I mean, I, I'm telling you, I, I've always told him, listen, I can't work hard as you. Um, I don't want to work as hard as you. So don't hold that against me. But he is, like, this band didn't change when, when the Seattle sound came. They didn't go, oh, well, we're going to be this. They maintained their identity as Bon Jovi. And Bon Jovi, over the years, from the first record to what we're recording now, has changed as the band has matured and what's going on in the world has changed and what the, the guys in the band think are important to speak about and write about. Um, so they weather, you know, the, the hardships, if you want to call it that, of the music business changing in the 90s where a lot of the bands were gone, fell by the wayside. But John, there, there's something in the songs, the Bon Jovi songs, and the collective talent of those core members that has endured. And people come to see them. And people come to relive those songs that are, are the soundtrack of their life. And they come to hear the new songs, you know, and it, it and it, it's just a testament to the talent and the ability and the work ethic and the drive of the people in that band. And it's unbelievable. They all strive for excellence and they're all successful outside of Bon Jovi in, in various endeavors because they take that same work ethic and focus and drive into anything they do. Um, I mean, it's pretty amazing to watch the members and, and see all the things they do and you know how they've grown over the years. It's, it's just unbelievable. Um, do you have um, or follow any morning routines, Obi? Or, and, and when you are on the road, do you, if you have, if you follow anything, do you try to maintain those on the road? Or does the road changes completely 
say when you were at home, for example, working in the studio and, and being with the family? Well, you know, when I'm home, like I'll get up, I'll go to the gym. Uh, I come upstairs. My amazing wife makes me something fairly healthy and great tasting to eat. That all goes by the wayside when you're on tour for me. What time, Not for you, everybody, no what time do you normally wake up in the morning when, when you're at home? What, what time? What time do you normally wake up in the morning when you're at home? Well, the dog gets me up at first at around <laughs> 7 o'clock. So she comes up, jumps up on the bed, and wants to tear it apart. And wants you to get down on the floor and throw the ball uh, until she has a heart attack. So she barks. She keeps dropping the ball so you hear the little bell in it ring. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I sort of wander out. My wife is usually up, got a lot of stuff going in her life and I'll grab, grab something to eat. Sometimes I go back and lay down for an hour. Usually it's just like, okay, get up, try to get down to the gym, go out to my garage. You know, if it's a summer day, take one of the hot rods out. Uh, I come back, I go in the studio, just look around, even if I'm not doing anything. And I go, uh, oh, that's nice. Um, and then, you know, I, I try to have like a life life. I mean, I, I want to go places locally. I want to, you know, you travel around the world and, it, and it's great. And then, you know, like I got home from this tour and here was the big news in my house. That Whopper, that Burger King was going to have a Whopper that was the Impossible Burger. Yes. <laughs> I marked it on a calendar. How oh, did you? August 8th. <laughs> the Whopper is going to be an impossible burger. Yeah. And I went. So there's my there's my big exciting thing to do in August. <laughs> I mean, it's I, you know, I, I live a pretty like kind of blonde normal life. I, I mean, I mean, I'd rather hang out with my friends and and my wife and you know, uh see you... my kids and uh grandkids and you know, uh, um, I, you know, just hang out, sit down and work with artists and write songs. And, you know, it's fun. It's mm -hmm. a lot of laughs. We, we sit out when we sit down to write. It's it's a lot of laughs. And, you know, you mentioned that the Whopper and Impossible Burgers. Uh, do you do you have a specific diet yourself? Are you vegetarian, vegan? Oh, or? no, no. So I. <laughs> I have the worst diet of anyone. The fact that I'm still alive <laughs> is unbelievable because I ate nothing but cheeseburgers for about 30 years. I can't believe you. Burgers and fries I can't and a Dr. You. Pepper. I can't believe you. You're, so, you're slim. You're in great yeah. shape. I mean, I can't believe you. Well, <laughs> I ate – I ate, I have a terrible diet. I mean, I've gotten better in the past few years. But I would drink – I can remember owning a studio and you would have some – crazy heavy metal band would come in and the first guy, thing the guy the guitar player in the band would do was like put out a giant line of biker crank and snort it <laughs> and then you're there and you're you know you're gonna go for the next 16 hours <laughs> and i'm drinking jolt cola and dr pepper to try to keep up with them <laughs> and it's hard so i would drink soda i would eat french fries hoagies cheesesteaks now, I eat a lot better than that now, but it's like, you know, mm -hmm. uh, like you hope I didn't do so much damage that I might have like a week left to live. 
God forbid, touch wood, Ovi, touch wood. <laughs> well, you hope. You know, you know, you know what life is like. You, you, you bury your grandparents. You bury your parents. Then your friends start going. You're next. And you know that's, you know, you go. Oh, that's a part of ride of the ride I'm on. So, but I'm going to keep doing music until I'm dead. Do you? Uh, are you? A, I love this. Are you a spiritual person at all? Do you have any? Uh, do you follow or believe on on? Any, do, you, do you follow any religion or do you have any beliefs in, in, in afterlife or in, in, in energy and spirituality and anything like that? Well, here's what I think. I think mankind could be nicer to one another. I think, I think we're here and we're supposed to give our fellow human being a hand up when they need it and just be, you know, just be nice. Just be, you know. You know, you see somebody on the side of the road, they've got a flat tire. Pull over, give them a hand. It doesn't doesn't take much. Um, do I believe in uh, a singular, like, deity that's looking down? No. No. You know, I believe there's something going on in the universe. There's got to be some amazing energy, you know. But, again, it's, uh, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, I think, It's a very communal thing that the people that you're in closest contact with it, be kind to them, help out, feel for them when things are bad, feel joy for them when things are good. You know, look, you know what? Santa Claus was a wonderful thing to believe in when you were a kid, right? Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. wonderful. So it's Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy. I can go on and on. But, you know, one day you grow up and you go, oh, mom and dad were Santa Claus. But it's okay. It doesn't. It doesn't negate that great feeling you had at that time of year, and people that went out of their way to get a gift for you that thought they thought would make you happy and would be something special and be something that you would remember. Right. Right. So, I agree. One hundred percent. I mean, it's like um, um, Maybe maybe I'm not complex enough to have all those other things going on. I don't know. What uh, what are the things that occupy your mind more than other people? Uh, you know, I, I I guess it's it's music is is the main thing. Uh, you know, I've got I'm sitting here in my kitchen, but I'm looking at the nine foot grand piano in my living room. And there's two acoustic guitars here. I have a jukebox. Dude. I have a 1955 <laughs> wow. Seberg V200 jukebox right here in my kitchen. Wow. So I come in in the morning. You turn the jukebox on. You listen to the Beatles. You listen to Elvis. Ah, that's amazing. You listen to Ray Charles. You listen to Aretha Franklin. Wow. I listen to James Brown. James Brown, E4. Please, please, please. So that's how I start my day. I'll eat my Wheaties. Were my Cheerios, and I listen, and I and I read a, a car magazine. That's what I do. I read a hot rod magazine or a car magazine. Exactly. I was going to tap into that. Where where does the love for hot rods? Where does the love for car and cars in general uh, come comes from? I'm an American, <laughs> and, I, and I was a teenager during the '60s. So, you know, those muscle cars. I mean, and, and the guys in my neighborhood, 
with amazing cars. I've always had 57 Chevys, 56, 63, 62 bubble top. I mean, I've, I love cars. I just love them. I love, I love working on them. I love driving them. And there's nothing like an old 60s muscle car with a four-speed Muncie transmission with a Hurst shifter with a white ball on the top. Nothing better than that. Nothing better. And the sound of them and just, you know, and I, I don't have many cars now because it was like, if you're going to work with young artists who are struggling financially, you know, you have to go, well, the money I put in the cars, I want to put in to these artists and help them. I want to help them reach their goal because the one thing great about this business and what you do is it gives you a bit of immortality because when you do records, your name are on those records forever. You know, a hundred years from now, somebody might pull up, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. And there's my name. They might not know me, but they, there's my name. That's why I've also for the last eight or nine years have done tons of Motown songs that were never released or alternate versions. And, and I'm like, I love doing that um, because I get my name on Motown records and there are records that I used to dance to mm-hmm. in the sixties. How about that? Hmm. <laughs> so a song I used to dance to now I'm remixing. Very it's pretty nice. cool. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Do you like um, obviously spending so much time on the road and, and, and you spend so much time on the road during your life? Do you still um, attend concerts? Do you still go every now and then to see um, artists out or is it something that you don't do it anymore? And did you ever do that? Was, was it something that you did in the past regularly? Well, I will tell you, I, I don't. And that could include do that could include obviously uh, new artists that uh, you might hear about and you might be interested eventually on them to work with them or not. Just interested in what the music they're producing, the music they're doing, or just uh, maybe bands and artists that you're still a fan, perhaps. I I most of the stuff that I go see will be seeing somebody I'm interested in who's talked to me about working with them. Uh, you know, or I go to the rehearsal studio with them and just listen to them. Um, I don't, I don't go to much anymore. Uh, but I tell you what, I did go see the Eagles when we were in in Europe. Uh, the Eagles were playing, and they were unbelievable. When they start with Seven Bridges Road, I mean, the harmonies—you just go, how is that possible? Hmm. I mean, it is amazing. So it was great to see the Eagles. Um, the only band I could say that I would crawl over barbed wire to go see play would be the Beatles. And unfortunately, because John and George are both gone, that will never happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw the Rolling Stones at Shepherd's Bush, you know, that little venue. Wow. So unbe- I was unbelievable. Wow. Unbelievable. I, there, there have been those 
you know, over the years, you're lucky enough, you're out on the road and somebody goes, hey, you want to go see Bob Dylan or you want to go see the stone and you get to do that. And it's it's great. But when I'm home, you know, because I'm far away from everything, I don't live close to anything just to even get to a to one of the big venues in Philly. Uh, it's an hour and a half, two hours for me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm not I'm pretty much just going to hang home. Mm-hmm. And and turn my jukebox on. So, Everything I love is in my jukebox. Very nice. I mean, the having a jukebox, a fifties jukebox in the kitchen. That's that's oh, amazing. We've that's so cool. we've had multiple jukeboxes over the years. You know, I've I've got to find one more and put it in my garage. <laughs> amazing. Like I, right now, there's music playing. I have my garage door open, and uh, and uh, I'm playing an ACDC CD. Oh, right. With like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 20 of their songs on it. Mm-hmm. And when that's over, I'll go put the Beatles, number one, on. And then when that's over, I have a, I have a Aretha Franklin, her greatest hits. I've been listening to a lot of Aretha since she passed. Because, you know, you lose those artists when, you know, you, mm. James Brown, Aretha Franklin. You're lo- losing those kind of artists. Just so sad. It is, yeah. Just so sad. It, yeah, it's, and it's, it's very sad. Like um, even even you know the the recent, well, not so well, qu- quite recent actually. You know what happened to Chris Cornell and yeah. Chester Bennington and uh, Scott Wayland. Yeah. Um, it's it, you know those are those are those are scenarios of which uh, it's really hard to uh, comprehend. What considering that these people they have lived everything and. And for example, Chris Cornell, he was a guy that he obviously lived through it all. He survived addiction. He was uh, as you know, as a complete outsider. Seeing you, you would imagine that the guy would be living the best time of his life. He's got a beautiful family. He he basically dictates when and when he wants to work, and by work I mean write music and go on the road. So uh, you wouldn't imagine someone, you know, going down that path, and it's so sad, so so sad, and losing people so young, like in in, in such a you know um, drastic way. But uh, but I guess you know those cert- cert- certain questions, you know, will never get answers for it. And well, you know, and if and if you love those artists and they've been a part of your life and they've been meaningful, when they when they go, they take a piece of you with them. Uh, I mean, I'll never forget, you know, hearing the night John Lennon died. I, I you know, I, I was just devastated. It was just like, how, how could this happen? Why would somebody shoot John Lennon? Uh, yeah, the world's a tough place. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Hey, man, like they said, all you need is love. All you need is love, exactly. All you need is love. So, uh, what do you do to unwind then, Obi? I guess I think you kind of like. Uh, I, I'm always unwound, Carl. I, I never get. <laughs> I don't have to unwind. I, I mean, you know, people I work with would laugh. Like, what do you have to do unwind? Are you kidding? If, he, if he's any more unwound, I'd be unconscious. <laughs> you know, I, I love hanging out with my friends. Um, you know, the, the, the being on tour is when you get to go out and walk around the city. Or, or go into a new restaurant or like, you know, when we were in Israel, Hugh McDonald and I, we, we had to go find a Mexican restaurant. 
because that's what I wanted. And we found a Mexican restaurant in Tel Aviv, which you go, wow, that's pretty wild. <laughs> so it's just like going out and, and, you know, I love seeing the guys when they first come to the venue. I always go over early with our guitar player, Phil X. And we go over early and we uh, talk about music in the car and we talk about the show and the show the night before. And then, you know, it's like I, I talk to all the, all the, the, you know, the staff crew guys and all the technicians and just sort of get a handle on how everything's going, seeing if everybody's happy. You know, you want everybody to be happy. I want everybody to be happy and having a great time. I find that I find that really, really amazing and 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 and, and super like beautiful in many ways. You know, uh, doing what you do and and I, I can. I, I'm just wondering where how um, where does it still because um, I was talking to another friend earlier on today and a very successful uh, brewer, international brewer from Denmark. And and he's always driven. He's always like you know he conquered and he has on his life way more than he could possibly ever imagine when he started working on on, on the beer industry. And I asked him what um, what is what keeps driving you? What keeps driving you know you to go there? For example, early because it's something that you probably wouldn't have to do if you if you didn't really want to uh, at this point in your career. But what still drives you to, to be there early, to go and speak to the staff, to see all these people and to make sure that everyone is happy? Uh, I think in general, this, this is a, 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 an amazing quality that a human being can have. Uh, that's one thing and that's pretty clear on you, Obi. But uh, what else than you know, just doing the good and just spreading positiveness around? What else uh, drives you to, to, to go out there still? Well, you know, first of all, you're either friends or friendly with the people in the crew. And, you know, Bon Jovi always has the greatest crew. I mean, the men and women that are out with us, they're great. And they work their ass off. Freezing cold rain, steaming hot like hotter than the face of the sun. They're out there for hours before we get there. I mean, they're the unsung heroes of all of this. They, they're out there. I mean, I've seen, I'm talking to Bill, Bill Chappelle, our front of house guy, you know, working on that PA and it's, you know, 35 degrees Celsius. And he's been out there since eight in the morning and now it's three in the afternoon. And he's, he's just out there trying to make sure everything is working great. And, and I, you know, I'm such a prima donna. I'm sitting in the dressing rooms in the back in the air conditioning, waiting to figure out what, how many desserts they have at catering. Usually <laughs> it's about 10. Um, so, but you, you know, they're all, these men and women are working so hard. They deserve all the accolades. And you want to make sure, is there anything I can do to, there's a, one thing that you need that's a problem that maybe I can talk to somebody and make it move quicker. Plus, how they do their job directly affects how that show comes off. You know, the, the, the people that, that run all the video screens and all the cameras, and all the lights and the PA, the guys that put up the steel. I mean, it's in a huge responsibility because they all know that all those people, I know what it's like to go to a concert. You know, you buy a ticket and that's hard earned money. 
And then you have to drive there and you have to park there and pay for that. And then you buy a hot dog at the place and it's nine dollars, you know, mm. and, and then you and if you had kids, you either brought your kids or you had to find a babysitter. A lot goes in to that audience getting to that venue. You know, you can't ever forget that. You can't forget what these people go through to get there. And you have to put on the best show you get. And John is a stickler about everything being great for the audience. You know, mm-hmm. so the, the organization looks out for everyone. You know, they mm-hmm. want to make sure everybody's good. They have the tools that they need to do what they have to do. You know, you bring great people out. You have to give them what they need to do the great job. How, so many, how many people I, do you guys I, travel I like with? It. Sorry, Robbie. How, how many people do you guys travel with? What's the average I, number I of think, people? I think we were in the 80s with this last run. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, it, and it was great for the second half of the, the second leg of the tour. We had the crew on the plane with us, which was great because you get on every day and every, you, they walk on. Everybody flips you the bird as soon as you walk <laughs> on. And, you know, and, you know you're flying. You're, you're going back and you're talking to people. And, and it's just a blast. You know, you're there with people that, you know, like I said, you've become friends with. Mm-hmm. And they're in the plane and they're just they're just giving you a hard time about everything, trying to make you laugh and, mm-hmm. you know. Like I said, flipping you off, throwing food at you. It's great. <laughs> it's great. It's more fun. I mean, you're away from home. So you're away from your family and you're away from the stuff that you don't think about. Your mattress that you love, your pillow, mm-hmm. you know, your, 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 your family, your dogs. You know, leaving the dog sucks. I miss the dog. You know? Yeah, it's part you're, of the family, isn't it? Yeah. You're, you're, you, you know, you talk to your kids on the phone and, or you know you FaceTime them. It's like you know you're you're away. You're in another country. You're hours and hours away. And a lot of times, you know, you're 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 the time when you're awake doesn't really work with the other people. You're you're like you know if you're in Australia and you're like what is it fourteen hours different? I mean it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know then you meet all these amazing people come up to you while you're on the road, and they'll go. I just lost my father. My mother has cancer. Um, I, I didn't know what to do, where to turn. And then I heard this song, and I knew everything was going to be okay. That's that's what you go for. That's what you go for. That's extremely rewarding. That's extremely rewarding. <laughs> when somebody comes with you with such a, you know, being on a low moment of their life and saying that uh, a specific song that you worked on does change at least that moment on their lives that's it goes back to the beginning of our conversation isn't it that music if music can take you into this uh into this place where everything for that moment for that three minutes for that four minutes whatever the length of the song is if if the song takes you to a better place takes you away from from your trapped thoughts in your mind and 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 whatever bad experiences you might be facing it's that that's the magic of music isn't it i mean obviously i remember the first time when i heard uh, uh, some of my heroes when i was a little kid and and i can't help but wonder if 
you know, certain events didn't happen on my life if I didn't if I didn't have come, you know, to listen to the people to the music that I had listened in the past and people that came into my life and showed me the music that it was shown to me. What kind of life? Uh, I, I would probably be a different person. I would probably have never met the people that I met, and I would never be working on the industry that I do. And and how interesting is that, right? Like little things in life that change the whole course of of everything. And 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 music does that to people for sure. Look, I've had people that had a terminal disease at our shows come up to me, and like you know go. You know, I got like six months, but I wanted to come here and experience this. And you go, wow, because you know their life is being compressed into this tiny amount of time they have left. And what they wanted to do was come to our show. That puts a lot of stuff in perspective for for you, you know, Mm -hmm. and and like I'll complain about something when I'm out on the road. And my wife is always like, really, Mm -hmm. really? Let, Let me just. Let me just, she goes, I was driving home today and there was a guy on the roof of the building up in town putting hot tar on a roof and it's 100 degrees here. And, you, and you're complaining, boo-hoo. I mean, mm-hmm. it puts you, it, you know, she's good for keeping that stuff in perspective. It's great. So It's very important, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, everybody, you get into whatever you do and, and you know, you complain about it. And everybody complains about everything. But at the end of the day, I realized, you know, we're all incredibly lucky to to be a part of this and, you know, do the things that that they've done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you do you have um, do you have any views about um, what's happening? Uh, for example, I don't I particularly like I mentioned earlier on, I changed slightly my my diet on recent years um, because obviously nowadays we have access to so much information. There's information about if you want to learn a new a new sub a new subject, you just go online on YouTube, and there's plenty of information for for us to make up our minds. We don't necessarily need to only go to school and and get you know the program that the school is providing or, or whatever the degree that you're attending in college is providing, you can question all of those things that back in back in the day, not so long ago, you would take everything as as the norm because people would say so and then you would just say, okay, yes, then if you're saying to me that, if you're my teacher and you're telling me, you know, that's the path to go, I'm going to just follow it. But nowadays, we obviously can question everything. And, and, and when it comes to like climate change and, and diet and the way that we eat, it's becoming more and more evident. And it's becoming, obviously, on the, on the, on, on the mainstream media. The mainstream media is finally, slowly uh, showing to, to the masses that um, we kind of have to change a, a few things on, on our daily lives in order to still have a planet tomorrow. And uh, do you do you have any uh, any beliefs on that? Do you do you, do you believe in climate change? Do you think it's it's something oh, yes. that's happening? I, I mean, look, you, you can't you can't you know there's scientific. I mean, the science is there, irrefutable. I mean, you can say, oh well, it's not, and there's a plenty of stuff on the internet where 
it, it's false information. You have to be savvy enough to go, take this with a grain of salt. I mean, I want the place to be better for my grandkids, for my great-grandkids, for my whatever is next after the great-grandkids. Um, you know, so it's like where I live. I used to have a lawn treatment, right? They would come because I'd get dandelions and all the weeds. And I didn't like it because the bees would come and my little dog, because she's tiny, would go out and get stung. It would get in her fur and sting her. But then my neighbor put up 30 beehives. So I stopped treating the lawn because the bees are dying and I don't want to contribute to that. So the lawn is what it is. You know, it's green like this time of year. And then when it gets cold, you see the stuff there weeds and it turns brown and it, you know, it looks like urban blight, but it's okay. And, and I recycle. I live out in the middle of nowhere and I recycle. I pay to have my recycling taken or I take stuff to the recycler. Uh, anything that I think can be repurposed, we take it to a building place where they basically give it to people that don't have the money to go to one of the big stores and buy this stuff. And you can help with that. I'm just getting ready to send doors and siding and insulation to a place. So it'll save somebody $2,500. Um, the one thing I, the one thing I do is my green footprint gets smaller because I have cars with V8 engines that aren't exactly the most economical, but you know, I love them and it's hard for me to give up that. You know, I have friends of mine with a Tesla and they're beautiful. And I mean, there's a technological marvel. I've been so impressed with the styling and the technology. But you get in, they don't shake. They don't make any noise. They're not alive. You know, I get in my car and I turn the key and you feel it. Mm -hmm. You know, stuff leaks, makes noise, stuff's whirling and clanking. And I go, okay, it's a living thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's speaking to me. So I don't think I'll ever have an electric car, car, Carl. I don't think so. It's about balance I, as well, isn't it? Like, <clears throat> you, you know, you love that. And then, you know, you, you, we all do a bit here and there. And it's not about being completely um, one way or another, isn't it? I think, there's, I think that the key, the key in general in life is, is trying to find balance, which, which obviously human beings find it extremely difficult. Find balance on everything that you do. Don't go all the way to the left yeah. or all the way to the right. Try and find, you know, the, the, the balance yeah. between. It would be, it would be, it would be nice. You know, it would, uh, my, you know what I think everybody needs? Chips and salsa and a chicken burrito. <laughs> I just think that will help if, if they eat meat. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, you get a veggie burrito. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and then, Oh, I don't I'll, know. I treated my I treated myself to a Coke the other day, which I haven't had for a long time. Oh, really? But it was one, it was one that was made with cane sugar, no corn syrup. Mm -hmm. Man, liquid gold, Carl. <laughs> liquid gold. <laughs> but that'll be it. It'll be another a couple of years before I have another soda. Why did you stop drinking? Did you did you did you did you drink uh, you know, too it's much? Not, it's not. It's just not great for you. You mm -hmm. know, I'm trying to. You know, I, I've tried to make the shift from sugar to stevia. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, just 
drinking more water than anything, you know, that's, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. Do you have a sweet tooth? Oh, oh, Carl, it's bad. It's bad. <laughs> <Is> it? <laughs> I, I, I used to go to catering and I'd eat every dessert. And truly, there'd be 10. I'd have, I'd have one of every one of them. How come you didn't put any weight then? How come you, you, you sleep? Uh, it's probably because my body's getting ready for just a huge, massive explosion and heart attack all at once. It's like saving it up for me. So, <laughs> hey, listen, you remember, you know, it's going to be like, remember all those Dr. Peppers and all the moon pies you ate? Boom, dead. Oh, Jesus. So, <laughs> Don't say such things. Oh, my God. Well, you know what, Carl? Mm. I got to get, get back to work. I've got four more songs I've got to turn in this afternoon. Amazing. So Let's, I hope, uh, do you have be, enough? Of course, yes. I want to be mindful of your time as well. Absolutely. This has been an absolute delight. Thanks for your time, Obi. I really, well, really Carl, appreciate great it. Talking to you. Keep in touch with us. Absolutely. I'll see you in South America next month. Yes, you will. I'll see you then, buddy. Bless you. Take care, my Talk friend. Talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation, this podcast, as much as I did doing it. So, if that's the case, please do follow on Instagram at RollerCoasterCarl, myself at Carl Casagrande, on Twitter same thing facebook same thing uh do subscribe do subscribe on itunes subscribe on spotify that's very very much appreciated thank you and have a great great day cheers bye bye